Well, good morning. Uh, Let's bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, um, I simply pray that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Lord. Amen. You know, one of the tasks that um, companies work very hard at is to develop and come up with a memorable, compelling logo. A logo, of course, is a little image that represents the company and identifies it uh, to the public and communicates, hopefully, its brand and what they're all about. Uh, And the most successful logos, of course, are the ones that we remember and recognize quickly. For example, there's the Nike logo. It's called the Nike swoosh. And the word Nike is used to represent success. The word Nike actually comes from the Greek word, which means victory. And, uh, and this kind of stylized representation of the wing on the winged goddess of victory. So the idea is that when we look at the Nike swoosh, of course, we, we think this company is going to help me become successful athletically. Another example is the, the Apple logo. Uh, of course, we know what that is. It's the red apple with a bite taken out of the side of it. And that logo represents knowledge. With Apple, there's this technology that makes available to us more information than has ever been available to the human race before, and we have access to it in remarkable ways. So we look at the Apple logo, we think of knowledge. Perhaps the most recognizable corporate logo is what? The Golden Arches, right? McDonald's. And what does that stand for? The Happy Meal, right? Joy, happiness, pleasure, indulgence. And then another well-known logo is the Mercedes-Benz three-pointed star inside a circle. And the idea behind its logo, of course, is a luxury and power and status. Companies pay millions of dollars every year for people to to sit down and and, and think about these things and develop these logos that are compelling and and attractive and fun and memorable and, and positive. And the goal, of course, is for people to say, I want that. I want success. I want knowledge. I want power and prestige. I want pleasure. What they offer, what they're selling, I want some of it. You know, perhaps the, well, not perhaps, the, in fact, the most famous logo, bar none, hands down, in the history of the human race, is a symbol that's associated with the church. We see it on top of churches. We see it on T-shirts. We see it in cemeteries, on tombstones. We see it hanging from ears or around necklaces. Of course, it's the image of the cross. And because the cross is so commonplace today, we can't go anywhere, probably can't go a day without seeing that logo. Uh, and we begin to see it more as a, a, a symbol of, of, of a status, a cultural relevance. I've got a, a cross or, or a cross tattoo or a cross earring or whatever. And we don't really stop and reflect about where did this image come from and what does it mean? You know, the cross, of course, was initially a means of execution. Um, it was understood to have been developed by the Persians and then used more by Alexander the Great. But the Romans, the Roman Empire, the ones that actually perfected it as a means of deterrence, as a way of, of putting down a rebellion. It was intended to be painful and also humiliating. And the word excruciating in our English language actually comes from the Latin word for crucifixion. You know, it's interesting that this image came to represent the church. Uh, Here's this struggling little movement just trying to survive under persecution, doing anything they can to attract people to be a part of their community and a part of their message. And the symbol they choose to represent their message, their movement, 
is not a message, a symbol that represents success or knowledge or power or pleasure. It's, it's rather they choose a, a symbol that is universally understood to represent scandal, failure, and death. Why, why on earth would they choose that? I mean, who is going to rally around a symbol for death? Who thought that was a good idea? Imagine KPNL locally hiring a, a market consultant who advises, advises them to make their primary logo a little electric chair with a slogan underneath it, the power is on. <laughs> that would be an odd recommendation, wouldn't it? That consultant wouldn't have a job very long. You know, the writers of the Bible have a lot to say about our God. The Bible tells us he's our redeemer, he's our creator, he's our father, he's our judge, he's our comforter, he's our guide, he's our friend. But the most serious and most surprising and most unique thing the Bible says about God is that he is a God who sacrifices himself. That God is a God who sacrifices himself to save his world, to save people, to save sinners like you and me. You know, today we're going to be continuing our sermon series, Back to the Future. And in this series, we have been looking back to the Old Testament and looking for signs that point to Jesus Christ and what God the Father will do in and through him when he came to earth. And this morning we come to Exodus 12, to a, a story called the Passover, which points us to the day when God will allow himself to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. Now, the Passover story is the highlight of what people call the scarlet thread in the Old Testament. And the scarlet thread is what, the, what theologians call the clear theme of God's plan of redemption and, and mercy. It gets its name from the story of Rahab. Remember the story? Rahab was a, a prostitute who lived in Jericho who helped protect two Israelite spies. And the story goes that she was saved when Jericho was destroyed because she tied a scarlet thread or a rope or cloth on her door. And that scarlet thread became a symbol of her faith that God would provide deliverance from the coming judgment, a scarlet thread of redemption. And so this morning, I'm going to trace uh, in different parts that scarlet thread all the way from the beginning through the Passover story to the cross. Now, before we look at the Passover story, let's go back to the beginning of this God's plan of redemption in Genesis 2 and 3 and hit some of the highlights, and then we'll go to Exodus 12 and then the cross. Remember how it begins? Uh, in the beginning, it says there was, there's, there's the garden, and there's Adam and Eve, and, and they're a place of, of purity and perfection. And they disobey God, and they feel guilty about it, and they hide from their creator. And then God finds them, and the scripture says that they were ashamed. Now, the truth is, is that's a common human experience. All of us have felt shame at one point or another when something that we're not really proud of gets exposed. Not a fun experience. And, and that's what happened to Adam and Eve. And the Bible promises that's going to happen to all of us eventually when everything done in secret is laid bare before God when he returns. Anyhow, when that happens for Adam and Eve, it's excruciating. They cannot come into God's presence because of the guilt and, and the shame and the pain. And so we're told that God intervenes and even then is merciful and does something. The scripture says the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. In other words, their shame and their nakedness is covered by the skins of animals that were killed for them. They're able to stand before God, but now death has entered the world. Now innocent blood has been sacrificed so that their guilt and their shame do not keep them from their fellowship with God. So from the very first sin in the Bible comes the very first appearance of the scarlet thread of redemption. 
We pick it up again in the life of a man named Abraham. You might remember we looked at his story when we began this series a few weeks ago. God does not want to let go of his, his ideal, his dream, his, his goal of relating to humankind personally. And so he wants to teach the human race a lesson about sacrificial love. And he chooses one man, Abraham, and forms a covenant with him. Now, the word covenant isn't just a, a part of our denominational name. The word covenant is going to be a really important word for us to understand if we want to grasp the nature of God and the meaning of the cross. You know, a lot of people entered into covenants back in those days. Uh, when a king entered into a covenant, it was always to, to get something, maybe access to water or to land or trade rights or something like that. And so the question is, if God enters into a covenant with Abraham and, 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 and then subsequently God's people, Abraham's descendants, what does God, the king of the universe, get out of this deal, his, his covenant with humankind? I mean, he knows the human race. He's experienced heartache from them because of their rejection and sin. He's experienced their ingratitude. So what does God get out of the deal? What does God get out of this covenant? Amazingly, the Bible says he gets somebody to bless. When you read about the covenant in the Old Testament, time and again it says, God says, I will bless you and everybody who blesses you, I will bless them. And, and the Old Testament writers are undone. They are amazed by the fact that this God who not just only created everything, not, he's not just the God of a philosophy, this is the God who would enter into a covenant with him and, and then they call him, they're so amazed by it, they call him over 280 times in the Old Testament, the God of the covenant. Now to enter into a covenant was, was serious business. The Hebrews would not talk about making a covenant like a handshake covenant or a written contract. Literally, they would talk about cutting a covenant. And here's why. If we enter into a covenant together, we are making promises to each other, and here's the way people would do it back in, in this day. They would take animals, and they would literally cut them in half. And they would lay one half of the animal here and one half of the animal there, and then they would do a covenant walk, it was called. They would walk between the pieces of the covenant. And the symbolic meaning of this was, may what happen to these animals be my fate if I do not keep my end of the deal, if I do not honor my covenant with you. Jeremiah thirty four eighteen says, the men who have violated my covenant, this is God speaking, I will treat them like the calf they cut into and then walk between its pieces. It's the covenant walk. When people cut a covenant, blood gets shed. You know, it's kind of a, a tiny real reflection of, of, of this in our day. When a little kid is making a, a serious promise, really wants you to believe him or her, they, they say stuff like this, I promise, cross my heart, hope to die. And if they're really serious, they say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Remember, anybody remember that one? Who came up with that? I don't know, kind of scary. So covenants were, were a big deal. And when somebody violated the covenant... It wasn't voided. Sanctions wouldn't come into play. And things would get very unpleasant for the, the violator. But here's what's amazing in this business of God making a covenant with his people. There's this incredible scene in Exodus 15 where God has Abraham bring some animals to him, a ram, a goat, and a heifer. And he cuts them in two. And he sets the paths apart. And then what's amazing in the story is who does the covenant walk? Genesis fifteen seventeen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the places. 
Now, in the Old Testament, smoke and fire symbolize what? The presence of God. So God, not Abraham, is taking the covenant walk. God humbles himself to take an oath. In essence, saying, Abraham, I want so much for you to trust in me, to have faith in me, to believe in me, to walk with me, that I myself will take the covenant walk. May it be so with me if I do not keep my promise with you. It's a remarkable story. There's no other God like this in all of, of, of human literature and history. And if the covenant between God and the human race gets broken, if it's not honored, there's a price that will have to be paid, and who's going to pay for it? There's blood that will have to be shed. Who will shed it? There's a body that has to be broken. Whose body will be broken? There's a scarlet thread, and it's running throughout the Bible. And now we come to the Passover story in Exodus 12. God's people are trapped in slavery in Egypt, and God is going to bring them out to freedom. Remember the story? God calls upon Moses to send Moses to confront Pharaoh and, and command and ask Moses to set God's people free. Nine times God sends plagues, and nine times it's not enough. Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, no, I will not let those people go. And then God says, I'm going to send a tenth plague, and this plague will be the mother of all plagues. An angel of death will come upon the land, and the firstborn of every household will die. But... God says, for those who do something that I tell them to do, they will be saved. And that something was the Passover account, which we read just a few minutes ago, where God tells the people to take a lamb, and not just any lamb, a lamb without blemish, a male lamb, a spotless lamb, that will be sacrificed. And then they were to take the blood from that lamb and smear it over the doorposts of their household. And then that would be a sign, God says, and when he, the angel of death came along and saw the blood, he would, they would be passed over and they would be spared. Redemption was coming to those who trusted in the blood of the lamb. But it came at a cost. And the scarlet thread weaves on. We see it again in what was probably the highest holy day in all of Israel. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And now the idea of atonement is an ancient one. The idea of atonement simply is when a wrong has been done, when a relationship has been violated, that reparations must be made and justice has to be satisfied. So, for example, if I, if I have $100 and you steal it from me, it's not enough for you to come to me and say, oops, my bad, I'll try not to let that happen again. A sincere apology is good, but it's not enough. What else do you have to do? You have to pay me back, right? Money has to change hands. A wrong has to be set right. That's the idea of atonement. The word atonement came into the English language in about the 16th century, and originally it came from a phrase, at one meant. In other words, we're meant to be one. It's a restoration of oneness between people, the restoration of oneness between us and God. It's the satisfaction of the demands of justice so that oneness can be restored. And here's the deal about atonement. I'm real clear about the need for atonement if you violate me just as I'm sure you would be with me if I took something from you and I owed you. It'd be very clear, oops, my bad, wouldn't cut it, right? But what was very clear, at least to some folks in Israel, is we have violated our relationship with a holy, just, and righteous God, and he is a real being, and this is not a small problem. And every time we sin, 
mistreat somebody, ignore somebody, cheat somebody, manipulate, flatter, deceive, use, exploit, bully, gossip, demean, judge. Every time we, re- we relate wrongly to another person, we violate a God whose character is nothing but perfect and whose will for all of his creation is nothing but good. And oops, my bad, won't cut it. I mean, who has enough in their account to make things right with God? Nobody. Therefore, on the Day of Atonement, it was a very gripping drama that would play out. And the Hebrews were very visual in their culture. And so two goats, the Bible tells us, would be taken and lots would be cast. It was kind of their way of expressing that that the sacrifice would be chosen by God. And on one of the goats, the Bible tells us this. The priest is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins. And he shall sin and put them on the goat's head. And he shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. And the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place. The King James Bible called that goat a scapegoat. A scapegoat. All their guilt, all their shame, all their sins, big and little, ones they were conscious of, ones they weren't conscious of, everything, all the sin of all the people on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, all of them loaded onto that one goat. The idea was on that day, everybody in Israel could say at least for one day, I have a clean slate. I'm a a forgiven person. I know this last year, what I've done, what I've said, what I haven't done, what I haven't said. I know I'll know all that stuff, but now I'm a forgiven person. I don't have to be loaded down with guilt and shame and regrets. I can stand straight. I can walk tall. It's all going on the goat. Now, of course, all those sins don't just disappear. Everybody knew that there wasn't something magical about that goat. The goat was just a symbol, a picture, a reminder. When sin happens, atonement must be paid. There's a price that has to be paid by somebody. And so the scarlet thread of redemption leads us to what is most wonderful and deepest and holy about our God. First, or excuse me, John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And when the Apostle John wrote that in his language, the Greek, we translate, what we translate as Word is actually logos, where we get our word logo from. And so in essence, God says, I want my brand, my character, my heart, everything I value, everything I'm about, my will, my face, everything to be wrapped up in one single expression. And that expression is to be Jesus. And God says, you want to know what I'm like? Look at my son, Jesus Christ. The scarlet thread is woven all through Jesus' life. And it led him to one solitary place where Peter, who knew and loved him, said, Jesus bore himself, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. For by his wounds, we have been healed. Jesus Christ became the scapegoat for the sins of the world. And when it was time for Christ to die, he went to Jerusalem to have a last supper, which was the Passover. Where he would celebrate and they would remember together that God would pass over his people and spare them because of the blood of of the lamb. And at that last supper, he poured out a cup of wine and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. They knew what he was saying. There was an old covenant 
And God is the God of the covenant, but it didn't work out. People couldn't keep it. God had cut a covenant with Abraham so many years ago, and it had all been shattered. It was left in ruins, and it wasn't God's fault. It was broken by his people. And if there was going to be a new covenant, somebody would have to pay. Somebody would have to be broken. Somebody would, who, would, who would do the covenant walk between those broken sacrifices would have to be broken and sacrificed himself. And Jesus sat there with his friends and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And Jesus, the man, did the covenant walk of sacrifice to a place called Calvary where the world saw him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Christ became our Passover lamb. And because of his blood shed on the cross, our sin is covered and death passes over us and we live forever with our Lord. On the cross, the price that needed to be paid and the death that needed to be died and the sin that needed to be cleansed, that atonement that needed to be made was finally accomplished, fully accomplished by Christ. And so what that means as a church, at the end of the day, we don't have a program to promote or a plan to execute, or a platform, or a product to sell the world. We have a Savior. We do not point to success or knowledge or pleasure or power. We point to the cross. The cross is a church's logo because it points to love. It points to Jesus. It points to the God who was sacrificed for our sins. Now, I want to be real clear here at the end. Um, if you've been fuzzy on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a little bit vague about what it means to be a Christian, if you've uh, been around a church for a while, but this has just been a little bit loose in your mind, the question for every person, the question for each one of us, is who will atone for my sin? Who will atone for our sin? What will we be saved Bye. There's a story by a man named Max Dupre who was a paramedic in World War II. And, and he served in Europe and he tells about the time when he and the other paramedics would go onto the battlefield and they would help wounded soldiers. Some of them were German, some of them were allied. And when they went onto the field, they would carry with them units of blood for transfusion and that blood would save lives. And the bags of blood would have on them the names of the donors. And so those who are being saved by this blood would know whose blood had saved them. Dupree said they started doing an interesting thing. It wasn't military policy, just some of the paramedics started doing it. They would save bags that had Jewish names on them for the German Nazi soldiers. And Dupree said they would actually talk to them and if the guys were conscious and they would tell them, you know, if I don't help you, you're going to die. You're lying here wounded, you're going to die, but you can be saved. You don't have to die. I want to save you, but you, but you will have to receive blood from a Jewish donor if you want to stay alive. And Dupree said that some of them, most of them would say, yes, please. Yes, I want to live. Give me the blood. Dupree said, though, it was the most amazing thing. Sometimes they would say no. Whether it was pride or arrogance or folly or whatever it was that gets in the human heart, they would say, I would rather die then humble myself to receive life from the blood of a Jewish donor. Debris said that when that happened, they would let them pass out and then they would save them anyway with the blood. <laughs> now here's the message of, of the scarlet thread. 
as clear as I, how, as I know how to make it this morning. We are saved not by being good people and not by doing good things. We are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, shed for our sin, shed that we might be atoned for, that we might be reconciled, that we might be at one with God. And God did that because he loves us. He is not willing that any one of us should perish, but he gives everybody a choice because he respects us. The most important one that we can ever make is, who am I trusting to atone for my sins? What am I trusting in to set things right between me and God? Who am I trusting to save me? The scarlet thread and the story of the Passover says, the one and only thing that is trustworthy to save us is the shed blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Before I pray with your heads bowed, I want to uh, speak to anybody here who is not clear on where they stand with God. I pray this morning that if you have heard anything or felt anything, been stirred by the Holy Spirit, that you would consider praying along with me this prayer. Heavenly Father, I confess before you today that I'm a sinner. And I understand when Jesus went to the cross, he was taking my place. He was paying my debt, a debt that I can never pay on my own. So, Heavenly Father, I would like to receive your forgiveness And I accept your grace as a gift because of what Jesus Christ, the Lamb, has done for me. I invite you, Lord Jesus, to be my forgiver, my redeemer, to be my friend and companion, to be my scapegoat, to take all my sin upon you. I invite you into my life, and I choose to follow you, to say yes when offered your blood to save me. Lord Jesus, I pray for anyone who has maybe prayed along with me today that they would know in their heart that you are real, that Jesus Christ's death and sacrifice is sufficient, that everything that needed to be done was done on the cross, that we are saved because of your love, not by anything else. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, this morning. And we thank you for your precious blood that makes us right with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.